You're listening to Simpler One Earth Living from Jubilee One Earth Economics and Simple Living Works with co-hosts Jerry Iverson and Lee Van Ham. The U.S. economy stumbled badly under the weight of the coronavirus epidemic. The new administration in Washington has inherited the worst jobs market in modern times. The challenge to find paths of recovery for households, small businesses, states, and more has been engaged. Here on the Simpler One Earth Living podcast, we pursue an economic model we call One Earth Jubilee. Today we talk with an economist about assumptions that underlie the current national economy and initiatives people are taking that show different assumptions and economic models are possible. Greetings, Lee, from Paso Robles, California, and Simple Living Works. I greet you, Jerry, from San Diego and Jubilee One Earth Economics, or sometimes we say One Earth Jubilee Economics. <laughs> Take your pick. Well, this episode of our podcast uh, took me into conversation with a person who I became friends with probably 15 years ago, uh, economist Barry Shelley, a senior lecturer at Boston University. In Jubilee Economics Ministries, uh, we benefit a lot from Barry because he's an economic advisor to Jim's understanding and practice of an alternative economic model rooted in creation more than in wealth accumulation or maximization of profits. So this conversation with Barry focuses in three areas. First, the underlying assumptions of the prevailing economy and the challenges in moving our economy in new directions. Second, the discussions happening among professional economists about changes and different economic models. And then third, local initiatives he considers important in showing that alternative sub-economies can be created within the larger prevailing economy. Well, Jerry, share with us the bio of Barry which is on the Boston University website, and then we can just go right into the conversation with him. Indeed. Well, Barry Shelley is senior lecturer at the Pardee School of Global Studies at Boston University. He went to that work after three decades of experience as a practitioner, teacher, and researcher focusing on the political economy of international development and the environment, particularly in rural areas of the Global South. Most recently, he served as Global Advisor for Agriculture and Climate Change for Oxfam America. There, he contributed to organization-wide strategy and research and traveled often to support national teams in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. Previously, he taught in the MA program in Sustainable Development at Brandeis University and undergraduate courses at Wheaton College in Norton, Massachusetts conducted research in Mongolia and Latin America, and worked in El Salvador with both U.S.-based and national NGOs or non-government organizations. His shift to international work followed jobs as an organizer and program leader in U.S. domestic social change programs. Our guest today on the Simpler Living uh, the One Earth Simpler Living podcast is Barry Shelley, uh, an economist who has been teaching at the univer Boston University and uh, has had a good term of, of work with Oxfam uh, internationally. And um, so 
Barry has a lot to offer us around thinking through economics. We're in a moment in the history of this country where it um, could be argued that it's largely because of the coronavirus. Our economy is in a big struggle. Uh, so uh, this is a very important conversation, I think, in light of, of where we are now. So welcome, Barry, into this time together. Thank you, Lee. It's, it's good to be here, and I, I appreciate your invitation. Well, we, uh, when we talked uh, together last week sometime, um, and we talked about, you know, the, the new initiatives that are happening economically and, and, and how, how do we really impact the economy on, a, on the larger scale, how can we make a contribution to the changes that need to be made? Because the economy as it's been is really destroying our planet, uh, isn't distributing wealth very uh, justly. Uh, so some changes really need to happen. But I think you're kind of pessimistic, or at least you're, you're certainly clear on how challenging that is. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about about those challenges and why they're so hard to do. Okay, I'll, I'll talk about, yeah, the challenges. I, I wouldn't say I am a pessimist. I would say I am pessimistic or better said, maybe a realistic about very large scale sweeping uh, change economically in, in terms of our, our economic policies and structures in the near future at least. Um, and I think that, that why that's the case for me is because I think we're still very much embedded in a view of economics, at least most people and most people who have um, you know, political power and, and economic power, uh, we're embedded in a, a way of a narrative, a story, a theory of economics that is primarily based on a pretty narrow view of human nature mm -hmm. and of self-interest. Mm -hmm. And so without getting into a lot of, I don't want to get into a whole you know, theoretical discussion of economics here, but um, even people who are, I think, really compassionate and who are really concerned about equality in our system and about serving people's uh, particular economic needs, that, I, that includes everything from hunger to homelessness to uh, health, um, still have a fairly clear to them and narrow view of how the economy is and should work. And that's based on the idea that, uh, you know, which has been the case for 500 years, that we act out of self-interest. That's who we are. We are human beings that primarily act out of self-interest. And the most patriotic, if, it's, if we're talking at the national level, or the most, um, socially uh, constructive way that we can behave is to behave out of our self-interest. And so the idea being that if everyone acts out of their self-interest, then that all together in this, um, you know, this 
this construct of an invisible hand turns out to be the best for everyone. Mm -hmm. Now, even people who really sort of ground their economics in that, I'm not sure they necessarily believe that if you ask them point blank about it, mm. uh, that that's all there is. But I think that, that we need to, um, you know, look at that story and look how that story itself then changes how we behave. So if we grow up in a system where we're taught that the best thing we can do for the economy and for the social good is to act out of our own very narrow uh, self-interest and maximize mm. that, then we're probably going to behave that way, mm. right? So then, you know, that's that perpetuates itself. Mm -hmm. um, I think I'm also pe pessimistic in given this particular moment, which is, you know, two days before we have a new president inaugurated mm -hmm. and only 10 days after uh, an insurrection at our U.S. Capitol mm -hmm. of how many people are attached to a president who is uh, corrupt, dishonest, wealthy, narcissistic, um, but somehow or another has convinced a lot of people, many of whom are uh, working class, lower income, that he has their best interests at heart. Um, and I, I, without going into great detail about that, I do think that that's tied to what I was just saying. Um, I think that we do have a vision in this country, which is still everyone deserves to get their share. And um, someone who's managed to, uh, in their eyes, become wealthy has learned how to do that. And so even if you look back at it and see that he had all the advantages to start with, um, and you know, there's a lot there in terms of, I think why a lot of the people who are at the Capitol were there and a feeling that uh, other people are taking their share of the pie and um, that, you know, they um, are, you know, consistently being pushed to the side is their view of things. And I think, again, that that comes from a, a dream that uh, our economy is built on, which is that mm -hmm. if we all act a certain way, then, um, you know, we will all be better off. And uh, that is perfectly justified to try to get as much out of that as you yeah. can. So I think just to, you know, to wrap that part up, I would just say, therefore, I, I do think that a major shift in our overall economic policy um, is unlikely, even if you have a more, quote unquote, liberal president, um, mm -hmm. one who who is more concerned about, uh, as I was saying, the well-being of our population. But I think that we're still going to to basically frame our policy in a view that is still, I think, limited mm. in terms of where it can go uh, re regarding that kind of theory. Um, that doesn't mean that I'm completely pessimistic about everything, but I guess <laughs> I'm pessimistic in terms of a broad sweeping change in policy that we, if we put too much hope in 
uh, an, the next administration mm. that we're going to have sweeping economic policy changes, I think we're going to be disappointed. Mm -hmm. I think there will be change, and I think there will be positive change, uh, and I am hopeful for that. And I do think that, um, you know, you 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 were asking. Uh, what are what are the cha challenges there? I, I think that uh, you know I do think that that electoral politics are really important, and um, I don't want to dismiss it. I think some people do as mm -hmm. never bringing uh, positive change. I think it can, um, but I think we also should just put that in perspective in terms of how far do we move the needle in that process? I think it's on a fairly narrow uh, segment of the overall spectrum of what we might be wanting. So let's be realistic, let's participate in it, let's do what we can, and let's constantly pressure those that can make change at that national you know, official level. Uh, but let's also be realistic about uh, how much of that might change in the next uh, you know, 10 years or something. You know, what you're saying to is, is very provocative to me, Barry, uh, uh, especially that you would begin by talking about the view of, hum of human nature. Uh, and, and it was so clear to me as you were talking about that, what a, what a narrow reductionist view of human nature uh, the economic, the, the sort of orthodox economic, the neoliberal economics, whatever you want to call it, that has been yeah. reigning for some time. Uh, what a narrow view of a human being that is. And, and, you know, if you were to talk to me without the context of economics and all that, and talk to me about how I'm, I'm, I'm a self-aggrandizing person and I'm, I just act out of self-interest, I would, I would just say, well, that's just, that's just a small part of me. Yeah, I do that sometimes, and I'm not too proud of some of those. Uh, and sometimes acting out of self-interest, in fact, is good. But I do lots of other things, you know. I mean, I, 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 want to, uh, I feel very challenged by the idea that we love one another, for example, to take a very basic notion. And so just, I, I think, too, that thinking about economics from a spiritual or theological point of view uh, this is not who humanity is. It's, it's, you can't, re if we reduce humanity to this, we really do appeal to our baser instincts in the long run, uh, even though there's some good that can come out of it. At least that's, those are my thoughts. I don't know if you want to respond to that, but. Well, I totally agree. And I think that one of the, you know, the limiting factors of, of having an economic theory that, you know, most people don't necessarily think about economic theory, but in fact, it is used to justify mm -hmm. a lot of our, our policies mm -hmm. uh, and, and behavior. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, but I totally agree with you. I think most people would say, well, no, I, I don't, I'm not fully self-interested. Mm -hmm. There, there is, you know, I also act out of love and uh, or uh, concern for other people. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, but those things, you know, that's more non-market stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's not necessarily going to um, affect my economic decisions. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, one of one of the 
positive things I see happening is that over the last couple of decades, there's been well, even a little bit more, maybe uh, three or four decades, there have been, uh, you know, growing um, schools of thought within the economics profession, mm -hmm. uh, feminist economics, uh, um, behavioral economics that have, uh, and, and a lot of others that are are looking at more alternative views of mm -hmm. both the economy as well as um, strategies for how we change um, yeah. the structures that we have, who, who really are challenging that notion of, of uh, what people would call homo economicus or, or sort mm -hmm. of like the economic person mm -hmm. who is narrowly self-interest and the idea that um, that will all in the end end up being better for all of us yeah. and so feminists in particular have really challenged um, that way of behavior it then leads to a whole different set of of um, you know ideas about how how then do we how how do we structure an economy behavioral economists um, are not automatically, not all are automatically wanting to upend the entire neoclassical economic theory, but, but they are uh, certainly looking at things like what really makes us happy? What, what is well-being as a, that is in a broader or more varied, um, more nuanced and more complicated than just simply how much money you have, which actually is the way that in many most economic, you know, orthodox models are, that's the way well-being is measured is by, yeah. is by money. So yeah. um, I agree. And I think that it's very limited and more and more people are realizing that. And one of the reasons why, you know, that hasn't been incorporated more into mainstream economic theory is that it's hard to do. Mm -hmm. You can't, you can't so easily put, you know, love and well-being and altruism into an economic model, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, or some algorithm in which you're going to use, which you're going to use to do forecasting, economic yes. forecasting or whatever. Yeah. But now people are looking at that differently. You haven't said anything yet about growth economics, but it strikes me that that just like self-interest of human beings is very reductionist about the full and abundant human nature. Uh, so to measure an economy um, primarily, even strictly by whether or not it's growing uh, and somehow say, suggest that that transposes into the greatest well-being is, is very fallacious. And furthermore, increasingly under question uh, even by economists who nonetheless keep using it. Uh, what do, is there a connection between that and how we understand human nature or in your mind, or is it mostly just uh, uh, an, an in, uh, and very incomplete and limiting way to measure the health of what an economy can do? Uh, I think it's several things. I think it is incomplete. Obviously, I mean, just by, you know, measuring the GDP of a country, mm -hmm. you don't you don't see equality. You don't see how healthy people are. Um, 
any of that. So yes, I think, I mean, and uh, without going any too far and with that, I think it's very limiting and it's very incomplete. Um, you know, there are all sorts of better indicators um, of which some growth may be part and there are different indexes that mm -hmm. use that and health and education um, and other uh, social factors as far uh, mm -hmm. to help us understand how well off people are in a particular place. I, I would add to that though, that, I mean, that um, I think the, the, the real challenge when it comes to growth economies is that in a capitalist economy, you really do have to grow or it will get worse. Mm. So th there's there are mechanisms of investment, and without going into uh, lots of detail, there are mechanisms by which people are are incentivized to invest um, and to keep growth going. And if you don't have growth opportunities for people, they're not going to invest. And in fact. Uh, this is going to trigger a, a, you know, various things are going to end up sort of ending with a, a spiral downward. Mm -hmm. That does not mean that you can't have a no growth economy. It just means that you can't continue business as usual and just then to decide that, okay, we're going to try to have a steady state economy that, um, you know, leaves our current level of production as it is, but we're not going to try to increase that. So in order to then really, you know, develop an economy that's going to work well for everyone, mm -hmm. um, and I would argue, and so would a lot of other people, that you could actually increase well-being mm -hmm. without growth, um, but in order to do that, that's gonna require some uh, very intentional uh, and incisive kinds of changes in how we both imagine as well as how we structure our economy. Um, and I would say as someone whose work primarily has been in international poverty and development, mm -hmm. um, you know, I would argue that there are many places in the world, in fact, most countries in the world uh, that are quite poor do need to grow further. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They, may, they may need a different kind of growth than what they're currently experiencing then and that what we think or most people think they need, um, mm -hmm. but that it's the wealthy countries in the world that are already using the vast um, mm -hmm. majority of the resources that we need to really then think about uh, a no growth economy and there are various, as, as you know, I know that there's the Center for the Advancement of Steady State Economics that looks at that and there, there are others that are doing the same. Mm -hmm. Well, that, you know, it just sounds like this whole discussion of econ economics and well-being. I, 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 I'm thinking, oh, gee, I want to make a separate podcast with Barry on that because it, it's it's so germane, and and it's it is it's very big. It's a big thing, and I'd like to talk about some others other items in the limited time 
uh, now as important as that one is. So I'm glad it's evolved in the process of this, um, this conversation. Uh, you've alluded to this already, Barry, but there are things happening in professional economics that, so in other words, to talk about the economy or to talk about economists, um, we're not talking about something monolithic here. We're talking about, about something that has enormous variety in it. And uh, as a professional economist, uh, what are some of the, what, what's some of the, the actors on, the, on a spectrum uh, for you as you look at it, at your profession? Sure, I mean, um... First of all, there are, I mean, one, one of the issues I think in economics, the profession is that most schools of economics in the US uh, in particular, and, and to a large extent in other places, basically teach, uh, I, I don't, I'm, I may be overstating this a little bit, but they're, they're going to primarily teach a um, pretty neoclassical view of economics and in many cases present that as though that is economics. Mm -hmm. um, there are, however, um, a number of economic departments, uh, one of which I uh, studied in at the University of, of Massachusetts at Amherst that, that are known for approaching economics in much more of a heterodox or pluralistic way and and basically uh, teaching the the standard kind of models uh, and theory but who also say there are other ways of also approaching this and mm -hmm. uh, you know there there are economists out there that have that kind of background mm -hmm. um, uh, but I'm not sure that there's necessarily a lot of growth in the economic education mm -hmm itself at the graduate level. Uh, however, there are movements, um, as you were uh, saying, of professional economists that are looking at things from a different uh, standpoint and are trying to have some influence in that regard. So you have everything from the uh, New Economics Foundation in UK mm -hmm. was one of the first groups mm -hmm. to sort of start doing uh, more rigorous research and, and influencing around um, new ways of looking at the economy, democratic economy. There, that's in the UK. There are there's the Institute for the New Economic Thinking based out of New York, which is not quite as perhaps alternative as maybe I would want them to be, but are still looking at this in that regard. There's the Schumacher. Center for New Economics in Western Mass, um, the center, as I just mentioned, for the advancement of the steady state economy. There's the E3 uh, initiative that some folks that I know of that are involved with called Economics for Equity and Environment Network. Uh, it goes on and on. So there are, and these are relatively new. Um, mm. You know, there, it's not to say that there haven't been initiatives like this in the past, but there seems to be a, a little bit more mm -hmm. of a bubbling up of this kind of thinking and some support given to that way of thinking in which people collectively can look at that within the prof profession. There, there also, 
you know, there's the Solidarity Economics Network mm -hmm. um, that's been working at the international level. And there's a U.S. Uh, chapter of that working a lot at democratic economics, which involves worker-owned co-ops and uh, land trusts and credit unions and a, a mm -hmm. lot more there in terms of seeing economics in a much more collective shared kind of sense. Uh, in my own uh, city of Brockton, Massachusetts, I'm involved with the Brockton interfaith community that is uh, undertaken an initiative in the last couple of years around workers co-ops. Um, unfortunately, the pandemic has slowed that recently uh, mm -hmm. in terms of that organizing efforts. But I could go on and on. I mean, there, there are initiatives in different places um, that uh, are, and I guess, I mean, maybe the, one of the main points I would want to make here, in addition to uh, the more professional economics kind mm -hmm. of, of initiatives, there are also these other more activist or more practitioner, maybe is the better mm -hmm. way. Okay. Or, uh, efforts that are that are taking place. And I think that, you know, for the Solidarity Economics Network, the uh, Brockton Interfaith community and others that are working in these areas, the idea there, which I think is really important to see is there are already conditions in some place that you can, that are amenable and you can create those, the conditions to allow you to have sub-economic economies in a way um, that are alternative to the, the current larger system. And um, that doesn't mean that you're in a vacuum. You're very much engaged with the, the whole uh, economy and community around you and you're engaged with the markets around you, but you're doing it in a different way and you're not necessarily you know, you're not saying, well, we have to wait for the whole structure to change before uh -huh. we get anywhere. Um, and maybe, maybe that's a, you know, good place to say, I mean, one of the other um, places that gives me some hope, and, and this is where you and I met, what, mm -hmm. I don't know, 20 years ago, um, was around Sabbath economics and uh, where the faith communities of our country and all over the world are weighing in on mm -hmm. what the economy should look like. And that if we look at a biblical uh, vision of a thread that runs through the biblical story, both the Hebrew Bible and for Christians, the New Testament, um, it's, it's a, I, don't, I won't say that there's an economic system that's being proposed there, mm -hmm. but there's certain values around solidarity and sharing and uh, not taking more than you need um, that I think are very much connected to what is well-being mm -hmm. and, um, and what is fairness and what is just and what is economic justice. And so, uh, you know, for me, it's also consistent with the idea that um, I, I, Bill Weber was a mentor of mine. He was the one of the founders of the East Harlem Protestant Parish in East Harlem in the 1950s, and then later was the president of New York Theological Seminary. Um, but he used to talk about how we're not called 
necessarily to bring in the reign of God, that that's really God's business. But we're called to create signs of that reign. And that, uh, as Jesus said, uh, the, the kingdom, or what I like to call the kingdom, um, is both here and now and yet to come. So mm -hmm. it's not going to be the perfect reign of God, but there are already conditions by which we can create signs of that mm -hmm. new vision, you know, Jerusalem on the hill, so to speak. Um, and that part of these movements uh, and initiatives around co-ops and other kinds of alternative arrangements are part of that. It's part of how we build those kinds of signs of God's reign in the midst of a system that may have only very sparse kinds of uh, commonalities with where, how we might vision that reign. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I, oh goodness, I, there are so many things that you're saying that provoke me to, uh, into conversation, but let me see if I can uh, pick out one or two here. It, you know, it, it's been encouraging to me as I work in Jubilee Economics Ministries and working on, on a, an economy that is, I would call it an ecological economics, one that really re, uh, recognizes that all of creation uh, is the um, one within which economics must work, which I think is quite um, topsy-turvy to the notion that we, first of all, serve our self-interest uh, so this would be, first of all, serving and maximizing the place we are in within the whole creational order. So as I, as I work with that, I, I'm, I'm always encouraged when I see sort of a high profile person in economics uh, say things that I think, oh, good. You know, for example, one person who's often done this is Joseph Stiglitz. Mm -hmm. um, a Nobel Prize winner, I think, in economics. Is that true? That's correct, yeah. And then Gar Alperovitz. I don't know if he's an economist or not, but he certainly has been active in, in the... Mm -hmm. In a lot of community economic stuff, yeah. Community economic stuff. Uh, and she's now passed, but I remember uh, Eleanor Ostrom, the first woman to get a Nobel Prize in economics and her emphasis on... Uh, that basically undercuts... Uh, the tragedy of the commons, that the commons can't really work because, because self-interest will intervene and people will take more than their share and it'll just mess up the whole commons. And she, uh, over a lifetime, showed that that wasn't necessarily true. Um, she wasn't an economist, which so a lot of economists were very upset when she got the Nobel Prize. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. No, she was, uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, um, and then I don't know what Paul Krugman is, is isn't he, he an economist too, I think? Or yes, not? he is. Yeah. Very much. Uh, and and he's um I don't know, I don't know how you um view what I'm saying, but I'm just saying that as as a person who you know is not a trained economist at all, uh when I when I see those kinds of people saying something that I feel like is really heterodox to use a word that you used earlier or really recognizes the weaknesses in the prevailing uh, e economy 
that, uh, oh, this just, this just lifts my spirit. As you have, by the way, when I first met you and I thought, son of a gun, here's, a, here's an economist and just listen to him. And, and I, was, I was so encouraged. So, um, I, you know, I, I, and you've indicated that your mentors at Amherst, uh, University of Massachusetts Amherst, uh, have certainly been encouragement to you. So I just want to want to say that you know your your voice in in this is uh, a huge lift to us, and how much I value the fact that you're uh, an advisor to us in Jubilee Economics Ministries on, on economics. And and until recently, you've been kind of an underused one in that capacity. But but I appreciate. Um, this time uh, with you. Would you like to say anything more about any, any of the new initiatives that feel uh, especially strong to you or have you covered them? Um, uh... um, I, I have not been recently, other than keeping up with what they're doing. I mean, I have been involved with, um, well, as Collective Leadership Institute, uh, which isn't, very specifically economics that's based in Germany, I've been doing some work with, mm. um, but that's really more, um, well, it is related. It, it's more related to some of the work I've been doing around community-led development, which is much more of a, uh, instead of having outsiders with money coming in and mm. determining how poor rural communities and wherever Niger or Mali should develop as having much more of a, of a process by which um, people in those communities have mm. a, not just have a voice and participate, but actually are part of the initial visioning of, mm. of how that should be carried out. Um, by the way, the, the, the podcast episode just prior to this one was with Grace Dernis, and that's been her specialty this community uh, asset-based uh, oh, right. development. And so she has some wonderful stories to tell in that uh, episode for anyone who uh, is listening here and hasn't yet listened to that one. Listen to Grace, she has good things to say. Oh, also, I'll list, yeah, I'll have to look at that myself. Uh, also, um, it's really the model. You know, I, I'm so intrigued by the Jubilee Circle in San Cristobal because uh, they're very explicit in following this notion of uh, community asset-based kind of development. And then also uh, they've connected with the, the Solidarity Network uh, uh, in, in uh, Solidarity Economics Network is what I was trying to say uh, that you referred to as well. Yeah. I well, but to, to say maybe a little bit more about some of these new initiatives, I mean, I think that some of them, like the New Economics um, Foundation in the UK, um, and perhaps maybe from a, a lesser degree, the Schumacher Center for the New Economics, are, are doing quite rigorous research and have credibility in, within the economics, at least part of the economic profession. And then there are others that are more uh, directly related in actual uh, initiatives on the ground, so to speak. And mm -hmm. I think that both of those things are um, important. I, I, I think it still remains to be seen how much influence in the mm -hmm. long run and at a broader scale, these sort of 
um, alternative economics think tanks are going to have. I think they have, I think they do have influence, um, but it goes back to maybe my initial mm-hmm. statement that I'm not sure, you know, uh, I think it's a long haul and it's going to have to, uh, I don't think that they're going to be able to automatically and in some grand scheme of things uh, be able to mm-hmm. completely change economic policy in these particular places. I, I, I think they should continue to work at that. Um, the, I was um, also going to mention that I don't think I did before. There's also uh, one of the things that's sort of exciting to me is that a few years ago, a few economists in the UK formed a sort of a collective, although I don't think it's formalized so much, but, um, but a collective effort to provide open source economic teaching materials that are heterodox. Um, and they've engaged now economists all over the mm. United States and the UK and in uh, Western Europe and, uh, and elsewhere to put together um, basically textbooks, but they're alternative in many ways, and they don't cost $150 uh, to students like a lot of economics textbooks do. That's called the core, uh, C-O-R-E, economics, which is again online. I think one of the challenges is to find a way to help people understand that at least in my opinion, and I think yours as well, um, coming to much more of a solidarity economy of an an economy that is not based on um, just simply drawing raw raw materials out of of the environment for our own uh, production and therefore our own um, consumer goods uh, and is not based on this idea of, of maximizing individual self-interest uh, and is not ma- you know, based on the idea of growth being essential. I think when a lot of times when people hear that we need some kind of alternative, that we are have an economy based on self-interest and et cetera, et cetera, they envision this as a sort of a dark, damp, not colorful world Mm. in which we're all going to then sort of slowly descend into, uh, you know, poverty and unhappiness. And uh, I believe, and, and I think initially that came out of more my understanding of the biblical word as well as my faith, um, and more recently has been reinforced, I think, by a lot of good economic research that says, no, this is, we're not asking you to sacrifice. Mm-hmm. We're asking you to buy into a different story mm. that actually will make you happier. Oh, wow. Yes. And that, you know, that, that we're presenting an idea that is, that is, um, really should help improve the well-being and that in its broader sort of sense than what we currently have. They Mm -hmm. currently have a that an economy that's really tells us that 
we'll be happier the more we have. Mm -hmm. And um, even within mainstream economic circles, there's a lot of good stuff that shows what most of us or a lot of us already sort of knew, which is what makes you happier is not always uh, having more. And yes, if you are, if we're talking about very, very poor communities or families, yes, having more is going to help you mm -hmm. safer and more secure and therefore mm -hmm. your well-being is going to be improved up to a certain point. But beyond a certain point of basically having what we need, it actually does not, it just levels off the, the increase in happiness and then actually can start coming down so okay. that you're not actually less happy the the more you have on that upper end. So I think that's that's where for me, um, a lot of this leads me is that if we really challenge this all, this sort of common theory and understanding of economics and how we should all behave in the economy, mm -hmm. it's not asking for sacrifice. It's, it ask, it's, act, it's a challenge to get us to change that behavior and change our mentality but with the hope and uh, the promise that we'll actually be happier yeah. and uh, more connected to each other than we are currently. Yeah, the pursuit of happiness will have a better result than, than what the American dream can but, give us. Which is what you've been saying for a long time as well. So. Oh, I, I love the way you say it. Uh, so thank you, thank you so much, Barry. This has been a rich time of just to talk about this all important area. We're doing this, I might note, on Martin Luther King Day, and in his his mm -hmm. most uh, I don't know what to call it very controversial sermon he gave at Riverside Church in New York called Beyond Vietnam. Right. One of the things he was talking about was that the economy has to change for uh, the whole Vietnam thing in his time or the other kinds of yeah. world in our time, as well as racial injustices. So all of those things are part of it. So in many ways, this conversation has been, been uh, uh, right in line with the teachings of this uh, excellent African-American prophet. Thank you for this time, uh, Barry. And uh, let's do it again. <laughs> uh, well, it's been a pleasure. It's always great to talk with you. You've been listening to Barry Shelley and Lee Van Ham talking about economic models as economies everywhere try to recover from the blows of the coronavirus pandemic. Have you listened to our other recent episodes? In November, How Empowering Women Changes the World. In December, Will O'Brien on Peace on Earth and the Politics of Christmas. In January, Grace Dernis on planning economic revitalization with poor people instead of for them. Do listen. You're sure to pick up thoughts you'll value. We certainly did as we created those episodes. You can subscribe to this podcast under the name Simple Living Works at your favorite podcast service. Individual episodes are available at Jubilee's new website, oneearthjubilee.com and also simplelivingworks.org window number three. Urge your friends to do the same. Please tell us your thoughts on these subjects. Leave a message on Jubilee, One Earth Economics and Simple Living Works Facebook pages. 
Until next time, this is Jerry Iverson of Simple Living Works with co-host Lee Van Ham of Jubilee One Earth Economics, wishing you well as we strive together to bring simpler One Earth living into being for the common good. Learn to live simply so others can simply live. Learn to live simply so others can simply live. Learn to live simply so others can live.